Hello and welcome to Buffy and the Art of Story Season 4. Today on the podcast, we're talking about Episode 21, Primeval, where Buffy must fight not only Adam, but the military complex that created him. I am Lisa M. Lilly, novelist and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com. And if you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you love creating stories or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're in the right place. As to Primeval, today we'll talk about how the episode sums up the themes of season four and has a bit more repetition than we usually see in a season finale, leading to a slower pace. Thematic bookends for The Yoko Factor, which was part one, of the finale and Primeval, which is part two, and whether Adam is a strong antagonist. There will be no spoilers except at the end to talk about foreshadowing, but I'll give you plenty of warning. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. Primeval aired the first time on May 16, 2000. It was directed by James A. Kotner and written by David Fury. The DVD edition includes a commentary from both of them, so I'll be including highlights in today's episode. The Yoko Factor ended at the midpoint of the two-part story with a major reversal. Buffy, Giles, Willow, and Xander argued and fought with each other to the point where they all left angry and feeling left out and misunderstood, and it wasn't clear how they could ever resolve it. Then we got a quick scene of Riley going into Adam's lair. So this was the midpoint reversal we often see in a well-structured story where the protagonist either commits in full to the quest or suffers some sort of major defeat. We pick up immediately after that in Primeval. And this episode has its own opening conflict, even though it's a continuation of the Yoko Factor. Buffy is in the underground abandoned high school and calls out for Riley. The scene cuts quickly to Adam, who calls Riley brother and says they have a lot to discuss. But Riley can't say anything until Adam tells him to speak. Then he asks what Adam has done to him. Adam claims he's done nothing. It was mother, Professor Walsh, who implanted a behavior modification chip in Riley that Adam just activated. It's not in Riley's brain, though. And Adam points to the left side of Riley's chest, says it's there, and it's tied to his central nervous system. Riley tells Adam to stop calling him brother. Adam's a botched science experiment. And Riley goes on, and I'm a human being who's going to do everything in his power to. Adam interrupts and says, sit. Riley sits silent and unmoving, which tells us so much so quickly and is another reversal to start off this episode. So we had a very strong midpoint here, lots of very bad things happening for Buffy and her friends. Now Adam does a bit of evil monologuing and tells Riley he has no power until he forgets his old life and embraces his destiny. Then Riley will know power he never dreamed of and Adam thinks Riley will like it. At 2 minutes 35 seconds in, we cut to credits. 
So once we learned that Riley was under Adam's control, for me, that scene slowed down. And now we return to it for some more exposition. And this is one way to deal with it if you have... Uh, as a writer, some sort of longer scene that does either require exposition or just a lot of talking without much action, you can cut it. Here we cut to the credits and came back. You can cut the scene to something else, maybe something more action-oriented, and then go back to where you left off. Now Adam explains to Riley that demons cling to the old ways. They're hopeless with technology and unworthy. Humans are smart and adaptive, yet weak and blind. But Mother saw the future, and she saw that Riley was necessary and had a role he must play by Adam's side. Adam now tells Riley to stand up, and he does. And Adam says, see, they are brothers. Spike appears and comments how it warms his heart to see those two together. Adam is irritated and says he didn't send for Spike. To which Spike responds, yeah, well, I'm not much of the being sent for type. I'm more of the uh, I did my part now get this chip out of my head kind of guy. Another very quick moment of exposition through conflict and fun because Spike is pretty much always fun. So now we know if we had forgotten or were just tuning in that Spike has a chip in his head and he's helping Adam because he wants the chip to come out. Spike now notices how stiffly Riley is standing and pokes him a few times to see if he moves. Riley doesn't and Spike asks what's with him. Adam tells Spike he activated Riley's chip and Spike says, oh, so it's chips all around, is it? Someone must have bought the party pack. This is the second time in five minutes that we've explained Riley's chip and seen that he is controlled by it. And I'm a little surprised to have that much repetition so quickly. I think it would have improved the pace and been more fun if we found out when Spike does. And then we have a little more about Spike's chip, which Adam says he'll remove when the Slayer is where Adam wants her. Spike assures him Buffy's friends want nothing to do with her. She's all alone. And at five minutes in, Adam says he wants Buffy down in the initiative with the humans to achieve maximum carnage before she becomes too weak to go on. We knew this from the last episode, but we often see this where there is a quick reminder to viewers uh, what is going on. Spike responds that that's what the discs are for, and Buffy will come to the initiative when the witch gives her the info. Now we get to our story spark or inciting incident for the episode. Usually you'll see this around 10% through a story. Technically, we don't need one here because this is part two, so we should be driving from the midpoint to the next major plot turn. But I have found that most two-part episodes in Buffy do have some sort of story spark of their own. And here, it is the push that is needed to get Spike to move our friends back together again. So when he explains about the witch, Adam seems confused and Spike says, you know, Willow. And Adam responds, her friend. Spike says, right. And Adam says, one of the friends from whom you've so efficiently separated her. And Spike responds, damn right I did. You should have seen them. They won't be talking to each other for a long, long time. And he sighs as Adam stares at him and says, hang on, 
I think I might have detected a small flaw. Adam is not happy, though Spike points out Adam's the one who's so smart. Why did he let Spike plan this? And Spike leaves to fix it. In the DVD commentary, David Fury said that the writers wrote themselves into a corner in the Yoko factor. They didn't realize until they started writing Primeval that they had split up the group and only Willow had the knowledge and the discs that were needed for Buffy to go into the initiative. So he said that Adam blames Spike, but the blame really goes to the writers. I loved hearing about that because I find that moment with Spike and Adam so amazing and so in character for Spike to be so pleased with himself and then gradually spot this flaw. And I'm delighted to know that it came out of the writers not realizing what they had done. It is also a great example of how if there is something like that, you can have one of the characters point out the flaw in the logic or why this or that doesn't make sense, essentially objections the reader or audience might have, and then you have the other character deal with it or answer them. Speaking of answering, at 6 minutes, 21 seconds in, Giles answers the door. He's in a bathrobe. He has a cold cloth on his neck, and he squints in the sunlight, clearly hungover from the events of last time. Tara and Willow are there to pick up her laptop and the discs. She forgot them last night. Giles claims he feels all right when he's asked, and he'll go out for a brisk jog later. But he asks, will they be working there today? typing, talking, which is fine, of course. But they won't. They say they're awkward goodbyes. We cut to Buffy. She's still looking pretty beat up from her last encounter with Adam, and she sits on the floor in her dorm room. She looks at a photo of her with Willow and Xander, and then she picks up the phone but puts it down and grabs her weapons, including a giant axe. This is great use of movement to convey Buffy's feelings, and that's something I had to work on a lot as a novelist. Uh, screenwriters have to do it this way for the most part. They have either dialogue or a character's movements, and I think that it pushes them to really focus on how a person behaves differently when they feel certain ways. And as a novelist, it's easy to default to, well, I, I can just tell the reader, but it's so much stronger when it comes through motion. Though, interestingly, David Fury said that it was Sarah Michelle Gellar's idea to sit on the floor. He had written it as the edge of the bed. And I think that sitting on the floor, her back against her bed is much more effective. We cut to Xander, who's lying in bed. Anya, after looking under his comforter and seeing he's nude, reminds him he said he was going to check the unemployment office for openings, but they won't even interview him if he's naked. But Sanders not going, there's never anything good, and maybe he should join the army, is what he tells her. But Anya responds, don't they make you get up really early in the morning? And Xander says, oh yeah, never mind. And he pulls the comforter over his head. Anya thinks he should just get over that fight with his friends. Who cares if they think he's a lost, directionless loser? But he can't get over it because he thinks maybe they're right, which shows the genius of Spike in figuring out how to divide our friends. 
Anya lies down next to Xander and tells him so what? He's a good person and a good boyfriend and she's in love with him and it shouldn't matter what his friends think. He agrees, but we can tell his heart is not in it. At 10 minutes in, Buffy is in the cave holding her axe, which makes me think of Willow taunting her last week about, yeah, just go in with your fighting axe and how dangerous that would be. And here Buffy is doing just that. She finds the computer terminals where Adam was working before. We cut to Adam. He's rolling away a giant stone and bringing Riley into a secret initiative lab. At 11 minutes in, Adam tells Riley this is one of Mother's secrets. And as he says that, a reanimated Professor Walsh goes by handing supplies to a reanimated Dr. Engelman. Adam reassures Riley he's not going to do that to him. Riley's destiny is much greater. So we're around a quarter of the way through the episode. So if this were a one-part story... Here, I would look for that first major plot turn that comes from outside the protagonist and spins the story in a new direction. And we do have that here. We have a number of new directions. We'll get one with Buffy in a moment. But here, Forrest, now part demon, part human, part machine, like Adam, rises from the operating table. At 12 minutes, five seconds in, we return to Buffy in the caves, and she runs into Spike. So he will now spin the story for her. She tells him Adam's using the caves and she found his lair. Spike pretends to be irritated. He doesn't want to run into that goon, but she tells him Adam has already cleared out. Spike asks, what about the discs? Don't they tell her something? And when Buffy says Willow has them, he gives himself away and tells her to get on it and goes on, can't ignore valuable information just because you two birds fell out now, can you? Buffy gives him a look as the light dawns on her, but just says, right. At 13 minutes, 10 seconds in, Willow is working at the discs at Tara's place. And just as she is explaining this great new approach she found, the disc decrypts itself. And Willow says, that is so annoying. It's like somebody blurting out the answer to a riddle just when you've, I mean, yippee, we have the information. I love this line because it's so Willow and it's something I think so many of us can identify with. Tara notices something on the screen, though, and says, yippee might not be the right response either, but the phone rings and interrupts them. It's Buffy. A little after 14 minutes in, Riley sits stiffly in a chair and tries to talk to Professor Walsh, but Forrest tells him she's dead and reanimated with only basic brain activity. Forrest, though, says he is not a walking corpse like Walsh. He's surging with life almost as strong and bad as Adam. Riley says he's sorry this happened to Forrest, but Forrest isn't sorry. He's free of all his weaknesses and doubts. And once they get some choice parts, Adam will fix Riley up too and put them back on the same side. This is interesting because Forrest probably was the most vocal about hating demons and I kind of would have liked to see a little more nuance from Forrest. I guess that would go for throughout the second half of the season because you would think he would have some mixed feelings here. His lines suggest what's most important is being on the same side and I think that is 
a value that Forrest could have or his emotions for Riley could be so strong that that overrides everything else. But we could have had some very interesting inner conflicts there for Forrest and seen how they played out. Which leads me to my questions about Adam as a villain, or more accurately, as antagonist. He is both. An antagonist does not have to be a villain. Uh, Generally in Buffy, though, that is the case. So as an antagonist, Adam does his job. The one job of the antagonist is to oppose the protagonist. And he does oppose Buffy, but his aims are sort of Buffy adjacent. He wants to kill a lot of humans. He wants to create this new race. And he wants to bring Riley in and make him a part of this master race. We don't know quite what Riley's role is meant to be. But that part was designed by Professor Walsh. So none of this feels very personal to Buffy, at least until Riley is brought in, which maybe is why that's part of the plot. But when I compare Adam to the previous villains, Adam really is the first villain to whom Buffy means nothing. Adam doesn't care about Buffy. He underestimates her throughout, which is interesting in itself. I like that narrative that both Adam and the military consistently underestimate Buffy, but he doesn't care about her, which to me makes him a far less interesting antagonist, despite that he is a strong one in the sense of being physically strong and having a lot of resources at his disposal. So he is hard to defeat, which is good for conflict, but he is less interesting because of that lack of a personal uh, opposition to Buffy. Back to Forrest and Riley. Forrest tells Riley he has no choice, quote, your will belongs to us now, end quote. Riley argues that's not true, but Forrest tells him, okay, then get up and walk out, which he can't do. And Walsh tells Riley to be a good boy and jabs him with a needle. At 15 minutes, 34 seconds in, Buffy meets Xander, Giles, and Willow on campus. They stand in a square at the four corners looking at each other. And on the DVD, the director and writer said, Tara and Anya were left out of this scene purposely because they wanted our four core characters that that's what the show is about. When Buffy asks, Xander says Anya opted not to join, despite all the fun last time. And Willow adds, she doesn't think Tara felt welcome. Buffy asks, who told her specifically that Xander and Buffy were talking behind Willow's back? And Willow says, well, I spike specifically, but Buffy turns to Xander. And who told you that we thought you'd be better off joining the army? Xander says, that's not exactly what he said. Now Buffy just looks at Giles and he says, well, um, Spike can be very convincing when, when, uh, I'm very stupid. Buffy says he played them all. He wanted to split them up. And that's where the things they said came from. 
They exchange awkward glances and shift around a bit, but agree to move on. And after a long silence, Willow asks Buffy what Spike's motive was, and she says she thinks it was Adam. Xander says, Spike's working for Adam? After all we've done, nah, I can't even act surprised. In a way, Spike brings our friends back together again, because I feel like this is typical Xander joking, seeming outraged, and bonding with the others over Spike. Buffy now tells them about Spike making a big deal about getting info off the discs. Willow says she decrypted them and then admits that they decrypted themselves. She tells them about a final phase where Adam manufactures a bunch of creepy cyber demonoids like him and that there's a special lab for it, but the discs don't say where it is. Buffy's sure Adam wanted her to know about his evil guy assembly line, and she connects the dots to the overcrowded initiative cells that the demons were too easy to catch, and now Adam will have them attack the initiative from the inside. And Xander says, demons versus soldiers, massacre, massacre. Willow says he'll have lots of body parts on both sides, gross. And Xander says, does anyone else miss the mayor? I just want to be a big snake. A nice callback to season three. And while I love this interchange between the friends, because we've heard this plot several times already in the last episode and this one, it slows the pace of the episode and it, it makes it less engaging. So again, I might have enjoyed this more if we put it together along with Buffy, Willow, Xander, and Giles. Also, this raises another point about Adam as antagonist. Generally, you want your antagonist to have a very strong motivation. And Adam's motive is to create this race of demonoids with machine parts. But why? It's, it's never clear to me why other than the reference earlier in the season to a design flaw. If you're enjoying the podcast and want more of it, you can support the show and get access to bonus episodes at patreon.com slash Lisa M. Lilly. That's L-I-S-A-M as in Marie, L-I-L-L-Y. For as little as a dollar a month, you'll get extra content. Some examples are a comparison of Buffy's and Giles' relationship in season two's The Dark Age and season four's A New Man. A breakdown of Angel's pilot episode following the same format I use every time for the podcast when discussing Buffy. And more recently, villains theme and metaphor in seasons one through four with an unofficial subheading of why Adam is not my favorite villain. Also, patrons at the $5 a month level get a free ebook edition of Buffy and the Art of Story, Season 1, Writing Better Fiction by Watching Buffy, and Super Simple Story Structure, A Quick Guide to Plotting and Writing Your Novel. Finally, if you're a writer, you might be interested in the $25 a month level 
With that, you also get 10% off my critiquing services and courses. I'm developing the first one now, how to plot a novel from idea to first draft. And after two months at that level, you get a free critique of your story structure based on story structure worksheets that I'll provide. If you would like to support the show for as little as a dollar a month, go to patreon.com slash Lisa M. Lily, L-I-S-A, M is in Marie, L-I-L-L-Y. Professor Walsh wanted to harness the power of demons, but she wasn't trying to create something that would kill humans. So we're not quite clear what she imagined Adam doing. She probably did want a lot of creatures like Adam. It's not clear how she was going to achieve that if she wasn't planning to kill humans. But we are told it's a design flaw in Adam. So other than that, he doesn't seem to have a real motive. And that makes him less interesting as well. Buffy wants to warn the initiative, but she knows they won't listen to her or to Riley since he's a deserter. And also she tells her friends Riley got bad news and he kind of took off. So this explains to us as the audience why Buffy isn't more worried about not hearing from Riley. Xander is confused again. Why does Adam want Buffy to know about his plan? And she says to even the kill ratio. Xander responds, he's not worried you might kill, oh, say, him. And Buffy responds, no, he's really not. There is much less awkwardness between the friends now as they bond over concern for Buffy's safety and wanting to save the world. At 19 minutes, 7 seconds in, Adam says, she's coming, he can feel it. And Spike responds, good on you. Got a chunk of prognosticating demon in there, eh? Adam again refuses to take the chip out until Buffy's there. Riley watches in silence. We cut to Giles' apartment. Buffy tells them, according to Riley, Adam's power supply is a uranium core embedded near his chest, probably by the spine. This is something that Jonathan found out in Superstar, so I like that we are drawing on that. Willis suggests some sort of uranium extraction spell and says she knows she's reaching, but Giles says maybe a paralyzing spell. He grabs a book but explains he can't perform the spell. It's in Sumerian, which he speaks, but only an experienced witch can do it, and she'd have to be in striking distance. Xander jokingly tells Buffy that's what she gets for taking French and not Sumerian, but he goes on, quote, So no problem. All we need is combo Buffy, her with slayer strength, Giles' multilingual know-how, and Willow's witchy power. Giles gives Xander a look. And he goes on, yeah, don't tell me. I'm just full of helpful suggestions. To which Giles responds, as a matter of fact, you are. At 20 minutes, 44 seconds in, our friends enter the initiative frat house. Xander says he's not nervous. He's full of that good old kamikaze spirit. And we get one of my favorite Giles lines. Xander, just because this is never going to work is no need to be negative. I may have to quote that to myself. When Willow asks, doesn't Giles think the enjoining spell is powerful enough to defeat Adam, Giles says it's very powerful, but also extremely dangerous. 
So we're right around the midpoint of the episode, and I think it's fitting that we get our friends committing. They are full of kamikaze spirit. They're going to do this spell. We don't know the details yet, but they are ready to do it, and they're about to break into the initiative, and it is very dangerous all around. Buffy kicks through the elevator's doors, and they repel down. Partway down, Buffy and Willow are side by side, and Buffy apologizes. She hates that things have been so strained between all of them. Willow says Spike stirred up trouble, but Buffy responds that trouble was stir-upable. And I'm, I'm happy that this hit Buffy. She seemed a little oblivious before, and now she is paying more attention to why Spike was able to split them apart. She and Willow agree they have all drifted apart this year. Willow says it's hard to keep the high school gang together during that first year of college. Buffy agrees, but she wants it together. She misses Willow and Xander and Giles. And she goes on, and it is my fault. I've been so wrapped up in my own stuff. I've been a bad friend. And Willow says, you're the slayer, Buffy. Your stuff is pretty crucial. And Buffy responds, I mean, Riley. And Riley, mostly. And Willow says, I haven't been misavailable either. I kept secrets. I hid things from everyone. Which Buffy tells her is not her fault. She was going through something huge. And Willow says she wanted to tell Buffy, but she was so scared. Buffy says, you can tell me anything. I love you. You're my best friend. They're still hanging in these harnesses. They have stopped with their feet against the wall and they hug. And Willow says, me too. I love you too. And they slide the rest of the way down the wall. When they reach the floor, they promise to never not talk again and they hug. And when Xander reaches the bottom, they stand on either side of him and hug him too. Buffy says, you know we love you, right? And Willow says, we totally do. And Xander responds, oh God, we're going to die, aren't we? But Willow tells him, no, we just missed you. And Xander yells up at Giles to hurry up. He definitely wants to be down here for this. At 23 minutes, 39 seconds in, the gang pries the doors to the initiative open, only to find a gang of army guys waiting for them. And we cut to a commercial. A great hook. We return to Spike and Adam watching on the monitors as Buffy is led in by military guys. Spike wants his chipperectomy, and when Adam just sighs, Spike says, paging Dr. Omiwan. I love Spike's lines, as always, but we've seen this take my chip out, not yet, so many times that I find it less engaging when it finally pays off here with uh, sort of turning it on its head, no pun intended, because Adam says the Slayer is not alone as the other friends appear on the monitor and Spike failed him again. Spike tries to run. Forrest growling and snarling stops him. Spike argues he was trying and isn't that worth something? And Adam, seeming to consider it, says he will honor the agreement and remove Spike's chip. Then he tells Forrest to take Spike's head off. But when Forrest throws Spike down against the computer consoles and tries to strangle him, Spike manages to poke his lit cigarette butt into Forrest's eye, which really creeps me out because I have a thing with eyes. Spike takes off and Adam lets him go. He says there's nowhere left to run. 
At 25 minutes in, the colonel and the army guys have Buffy and her friends in an interior command room. He's telling her she has some nerve to keep waltzing into the government base with weapons like, like, and he holds a large object shaped like a giant pear and stares at it in puzzlement, and Willow says, it's a gourd. The colonel stares at all of them, and Giles adds, sheepishly, magic gourd. There's a long silence, and the colonel finally says, what kind of freaks are you people? Buffy tells him Adam is in the containment facility and Adam's the one who arranged for all the demons to be there. The colonel doesn't buy it. Every inch of the installation is under 24-hour surveillance. And Willow says, including the secret lab? The colonel looks at her and says, including everything. Then he shifts very slightly, almost like stepping toward Buffy, but not quite, and very quietly says, what secret lab? I really like the colonel here for all that he starts out so opposed to Buffy and her friends. And he is is going to remain in that place, but he is listening. He seems like he's not, but he, he does ask Buffy what secret lab. So he's not discounting that she might have information he doesn't have. He just makes a mistake on how to deal with it. He looks completely blank when she tells him the lab that was built for the final stage of the 314 project, and she realizes he has no idea what she's talking about, though he claims he knows everything that goes on, and he says, let Adam try, they're ready for him. But when Giles asks how he plans to get close enough to remove Adam's power source, the colonel says... They'll hit him with multiple taser blasters, but Buffy tells him she's seen that and Adam feeds on the electricity and she says, and now you're going to provide him with an all-you-can-eat buffet? The colonel asks if she's telling him his business and Buffy says, this is not your business, it's mine. You, the initiative, the boys at the Pentagon, you're all in way over your heads, messing with primeval forces you have absolutely no comprehension of. The colonel says, and you do. Buffy responds, I'm the slayer. You're playing on my turf. And in the background, Willow smiles. It's this nice little moment of solidarity. But the colonel tells Buffy maybe that's true above ground, but down here, he's in control. So, of course, all the lights go out and an alarm beeps and a soldier tells them the power grid is down and they're all locked in. We cut to Adam at the computer console. He says this will be interesting and watches on the monitor as Horns Blair sells unlock and a white-coated doctor and military guy look panicked in the containment cell. We switch to their point of view as the demons attack, then cut back to a soldier telling the colonel the containment area is breached and all the hostiles are loose. The colonel still ignores Buffy, takes men out to retake the armory, leaving two soldiers to guard Buffy and her friends. Buffy, of course, immediately knocks them out. Willow gets on the computer. Giles tells them the spell is extremely sensitive. They need a quiet place close to Buffy and they can't be interrupted. And Xander says, uh, quiet? As he watches the chaos on the monitor with the demons and soldiers in mortal combat. It looks like a war zone. There's shooting, there's blasters, lots of humans and demons killed. Then there's some heroic music as Spike appears and fights. He's fighting demons and vamps because that's who he he can hurt. 
Willow finds an area with air ducts and electrical going to it, but nothing at all shows on the initiative's grid. It's right behind 314, and Buffy's sure that's where Adam is. It's unlocked because it unlocked with everything else. A nice small flaw in Adam's plan that I completely buy because he is not worried about Buffy. More shots of the war zone in the initiative. We see Graham firing an automatic weapon and bodies flying. Buffy and her friends run right out into it. Buffy takes the lead, fighting, clearing a path. Xander has a blaster and Giles cradles the gourd. At one point, Buffy tackles Willow to save her from initiative soldier fire. At 31 minutes, 17 seconds in, they make it to that deserted room filled with equipment. Buffy tells them to barricade the door to a corridor leading to Adam's lab. So barricade it behind her. Giles tells her the ritual will take about five minutes. Xander doesn't like her going in alone, but Buffy smiles and says, I won't be. So this is around three quarters through the episode. And this is where in a story, we usually see the last major plot turn that grows out of the midpoint and shifts the story in another new direction. And though this is a two-part episode, we do still have a three-quarter turn. Buffy finds the lab, and then our friends will start the spell. So a new phase of this story. Buffy doesn't understand why Riley can't move or speak to her, but he does shift his eyes in the direction of Professor Walsh and Dr. Engelman, Before Buffy can really react, Adam appears. He tells her Riley is part of the final phase now, like she was supposed to be. Buffy says, sorry, she's never been one to toe the line. She's flippant, kind of quippy, and he just says, oh. So that's another way he's not, uh, not like our other villains. He does not react to Buffy's lines, to her delivery. He just doesn't care. And then he just says, kill her. And Forrest appears and grabs her. Adam leaves as Professor Walsh heads towards Buffy with a surgical saw. And we cut to a commercial. So another good hook. And while it does fit for me that Adam leaves Forrest to deal with Buffy because consistently he has underestimated her, it also makes him feel less Strong is a villain. It, it's like that cartoony arch-villain who rubs his hands together and tells us his plot, but then just like walks off to let someone else deal with it. So of course, our hero gets away. I think that was the intent with Adam. And, and maybe it's just that those kind of stories aren't quite as engaging to me as other types. We return from the commercial. Buffy struggles, finally kicks Walsh and gets away from Forrest and breaks glass on the way and some of it falls near Riley. In that deserted room, Willow lights a candle, starts a spell calling on the first slayer for her power and primal strength as Buffy and Forrest fight. Riley does manage to call Buffy's name and Forrest orders him to watch him kill Buffy. As he watches though, Riley sweating inches his hand closer and closer to the glass and he grabs a shard and starts cutting into his own chest where the chip is. So this is a fantastic example of a character doing the most that he possibly can within his limits. So for a Superman character grabbing a shard of glass that's a couple inches away or even for 
a regular human being would not be a big thing. That would not be the character doing their utmost. But because we have seen Riley can't move, can't speak, only could move his eyes, has to follow directions, this is a huge thing for Riley. He does follow Forrest's order, but he manages to do something, sort of a loophole that the order doesn't cover, and we can see how much strain it causes him. Willow is now drawing cards with images. There's the spirit for Willow, heart for Xander, mind for Giles, and as Willow draws Manus, the hand, we cut to Buffy punching Forrest, and Riley keeps digging for that chip. Willow invokes the hand, the daughter of Senea, first of the ones, and Forrest gets Buffy on the operating table. Walsh and Engelman approach as Riley yanks out his chip. Forrest asks Buffy, is that all she's got? And Riley yells, no, she's got me. I never noticed this before. It's a bit of a callback, I guess, to that season two moment when Angel says something like, no friends, no family, what's left? And Buffy says, me. Such a powerful moment. And this, I really don't know if it's deliberate, but to me, I usually like callbacks and I and I don't really enjoy that one because that was such a moment for Buffy. And this doesn't have that type of power for me. We cut between Riley and Forrest fighting and the army guys, including the colonel, in the main area shooting and running. There's a lot more chaos and the colonel yells at the men to fall back. So now we are reaching the climax. That's the final confrontation between protagonist and antagonist where they resolve the conflict. At 36 minutes, 24 seconds in, Buffy enters the room where Adam is watching everything on a monitor. She runs at him. He easily knocks her back. She rolls backwards and gets to her feet again and attacks once more. As they fight, she breaks off the skewer that shoots out of his arm and she says, broke your arm. Adam responds, got another. He extends his other arm, an automatic weapon folds out, and he tells her he's been upgrading. Buffy dives behind the computer console as he fires, smiling. If you find the story structure I talk about in the podcast helpful and would like to apply it to your own fiction, you can download a free story structure template at writingasasecondcareer.com slash story. This is when I enjoy the Buffy and Adam confrontation, seeing them directly against each other. And this is one of the first times Adam truly focuses on Buffy, which is what makes it more engaging. Plus, we know it's the final confrontation and we're waiting to see what will happen with the spell. The camera swirls around Willow, Giles, and Xander as Willow continues chanting, becoming more and more intense, and she finally says, bring us to the vessel, take us now. Buffy, crouched on the floor behind that console, suddenly stares straight up at the ceiling as the console blows up. She rises from amidst the smoke and the wreckage, her eyes glowing. Adam doesn't get it yet. He smiles and tells her she can't last much longer. And 
Buffy responds, but it's not just Buffy's voice. It's Buffy's, Willow's, Xander's, and Giles all saying the same thing and combined, which is very eerie and very powerful. And she says, we can, we are forever. Adam looks troubled as she finishes the spell in Sumerian, and he says, interesting. He fires, but the bullets turn into flashes of light when they hit what seems to be an invisible wall in front of Buffy. In the room with a spell, demons or somebody bangs on that door to the room, so we're worried about our friends continuing the spell. Forrest throws Riley on the floor in that secret lab. Riley rolls against some tanks that are marked flammable and are handily sitting there. Riley uses one to hit Forrest, and it looks like Forrest gets the better of him because he gets a hold of that tank, raises it high, but Riley runs from him and dives for cover as the tank contacts that sparking cable that uh, Buffy in an earlier scene had pulled down and pulled apart. On the DVD, either the director or writer said that Riley actually opened that tank, but, but we don't get to see that it, the action is too fast. Forrest explodes along with part of the lab. Adam is firing at Buffy, but Buffy raises her hand and one of the small, I guess they're um, rockets, they said in the commentary, small rockets, turns into doves that fly away. Adam aims again, but she circles her hand and the gun retracts into his arm. They walk toward each other. Buffy dodges his blows. She punches and kicks him back and he starts to ask how as she grabs him by the neck and Buffy... I'll just say combination Buffy says, you could never hope to grasp the source of our power. She throws him. They fight more. She gets him against the wall, thrusts her hand into his midsection, and he grabs her hand and almost stops her. Buffy's eyes turn red, but she finally yanks out his power core and says, but yours is right here. Adam falls. So this moment so fits the magic versus science theme that we've seen throughout the season, the idea that he can never grasp the source of their power, but his is right there and she grasps it and she pulls it out. And Riley runs in. He watches as Buffy stares at that uranium core. It floats up above her hand. And the combination Buffy chants in Sumerian until there is a flash of light and the core is gone. Now we are in the falling action. That's where we tie up any loose ends and resolve subplots. So at 40 minutes, 28 seconds in, Riley touches Buffy. She collapses and he catches her. Our friends inside that room breathe heavily. They look exhausted. And before they can get their bearings, the door from the main area bursts open. A demon lunges for them, but Spike is right behind it and kills it. And he says it's lucky for them that he was there. Giles thanks him, looking exhausted, but goes on, although your heroism is slightly muted by the fact that you were helping Adam to start a war that would kill us all. Xander adds that Spike probably saved them so they wouldn't stake him on the spot, and Spike responds, well, yeah, did it work? They exchange glances and get to their feet without answering, and Spike says, well then, everything's all right, and we all get to not be staked through the heart. Good work, team. So this ties up 
our friends how they are doing post-spell and resolves Spike's subplot. He won't get his chip out, but he also won't get staked. The door to the interior corridor bursts open, startling everyone, but it's Buffy and Riley. Willow and Buffy hug. Xander says, you were great. And Buffy says, we were great. So our friends clearly reunited. Riley reminds them there are still men out there. Buffy assigns everyone roles and says she'll take point. Willow asks if she's up to this. She says, I am, as they exit, and she punches a demon. At 41 minutes, 47 seconds in, we cut to government guys in suits around a table. So this is a bookend to the start of the Yoko Factor where a government man in a suit talked to the colonel about the initiative and Riley. And I'm pretty sure it's the same guy. He's talking to the others. And he says it was an experiment to try to control the otherworldly menace and harness it for military purposes. But he says it's the opinion of this council that the experiment has failed. And his words play over Buffy and her friends fighting in the initiative and getting people to safety. The suit says that once the prototype took control, the soldiers had a 40% casualty rate. And it's only through the actions of a deserter and a group of civilian insurrectionists that losses were not total. And he goes on, quote, I trust the irony of that is not lost on any of us, close quote. He calls Walsh's vision brilliant but insupportable. Demons can't be harnessed or controlled. The council recommends the project be terminated, the records expunged, and the soldiers debriefed. They'll monitor the civilians in case they try to go public. The initiative will be filled in with concrete, and he ends, burn it down, gentlemen, burn it down and salt the earth. And the screen where they are watching what's happening goes to static. And that is the end of the episode. It is not, though, all for the DVD commentary. There are some comments about the season arc, and I couldn't always tell if it was the writer or director talking, so I'm just going to give you the comments. They said the whole season arc was how to keep the high school gang together when you go off to college, but that lots of fans were bothered by the relationships splintering. And they talk about how this was foreshadowed in season three, when at first Willow had all these options to go elsewhere, Buffy planned on UC Sunnydale, and Xander was not going at all. But they said how very real this is when it happens, and it's part of what made Buffy such a great show for adolescents and college-age kids. This underscores what we've been talking about all season, the idea that I think one of the patrons raised that maybe the Scooby gang is the protagonist of the season. And this seems to suggest that. And I wonder a couple things. One is I have found in Buffy discussion groups that often people who did go away to college seem to resonate more with season four than I do because I did not. And most of my friends, I was playing music at the time, folk music, writing my own stuff. A lot of my friends were likewise doing that. They were older than me. They were beyond college age. And that did not change for me. I was doing the same sorts of things. I was living at home. I was going to a community college. And my closest friend from high school went to the same community college. So my life didn't change as much. I didn't have that splintering. And I can see where it might have more emotional resonance if you went through that. 
But it also does point to one of the problems. If what you loved about the show in the first three seasons was this dynamic of the friends, it was less engaging to watch them split apart and not communicate. On the commentary, um, they also said that the season is about discovering the spiritual side of being a slayer, that you get knowledge at the university, but there is something more to it than that, and Buffy brings that to the table, and that this difference between Buffy and the initiative is she comes at fighting demons from the magic or spiritual side. That's why it's her turf, where the military sees the demons as animals to be shot up or blasted or blown up. And that was part of what they set out to do in the season to show that difference. I definitely think they succeeded on showing the difference, but the issues with Adam as antagonist, I think, undercut the power of that. Finally, just an interesting tidbit the Uber Buffy, as they called her, the combination Buffy, was partially inspired by a comic book called Promethea about a mythical goddess superheroine. And David Fury said that is sort of what Buffy becomes here. I'm planning to look up the comic book. I have not done so yet. If anyone has read it, I would love to hear about it. I do have some foreshadowing and spoilers, so I hope you will stick around for that. If not, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll return in two weeks for Restless, the last episode of season four, where our friends deal with post-Adam trauma in their dreams. And we are back for spoilers and foreshadowing. That moment when Buffy says to Willow, you're my best friend, it reminded me of season five when the Buffy bot says this to Willow. And I had forgotten that, uh, I mean, of course, we know Willow's her best friend, but I had forgotten that Buffy actually said this. And then at the bottom, when they promise to never not talk again, I feel like there is a little foreshadowing, not just in that moment, but in all of season four of the dangers when Buffy and Willow are so disconnected. They're both very powerful and in season six they are so disconnected and it leads to such terrible danger for everyone and some of that is foreshadowed in the end of the spell we see that willow we know she's powerful giles tells us the spell has to be performed by an experienced witch and she is the one who says the final words that engage the spell bring us to the vessel take us now and we'll see willow's power continue to grow in season five when she's the first one who can hurt glory and then, of course, in season six and seven, when she struggles to handle the power that she has and not get lost in it. This also struck me as another moment Giles warned in season two that by doing spells like the one to re-insole Angel, Willow was opening, I don't remember if he said a gateway or a door to a a dark power and here she does this again for good motives just as good of motives to save humanity but it nonetheless is another moment when she opens this door the dvd commentary about the spiritual side of being a slayer 
That is part of what launches Buffy on her quest in season five. So we end, yes, Giles realizes that Spike has been playing on his fears of Buffy no longer needing him. But nonetheless, that throughout the season has been something that's been very hard for Giles. What is his role now? He also doesn't have a job. He doesn't really feel like Buffy's watcher. And we'll see in the beginning of season five, he is ready to leave. And then it is Buffy's desire for more connection with the Slayer line and to know more about where she comes from that keeps him there as her watcher. She asks him to become her watcher again. And all of this season four leads to that. Everyone looking so exhausted after the spell is a tiny bit of foreshadowing for next episode, Restless, where they all fall asleep really quickly and then have to deal with things in their dreams. And finally, a little more on the theme of Adam as villain. He is the first, but not the only one of the villain antagonists who doesn't care about Buffy personally. But we will see a difference in season five because initially Glory doesn't care about Buffy. Her goals are opposed to Buffy's in the sense that she wants to return home. She wants to open that portal to her world, which presents danger for Buffy's world. But it becomes personal, deeply personal, because it turns out Dawn, Buffy's new little sister, is the key to what Glory needs to do. So that's what makes the Glory conflict so much more emotional and so much more personal. Season six, though, for the bulk of the season... The antagonists are the geek trio, or at least they're the only antagonists we know about. And that, from what I remember, falters for me because while they generally want to cause chaos and they want to amass power, they don't have a real reason to be hostile to Buffy. So I feel like you get this motivation problem much like we have with Adam, but we'll see when we get there. Obviously, when Willow becomes the villain, it is more personal, but even there, at least initially, it is more that Buffy is in Willow's way. Though when they have their final confrontation, it does seem like it is personal to Willow. She's tired of being Buffy's sidekick, she wants to feel more powerful. But most of that conflict is more about Willow versus Willow than Willow versus Buffy. So that is it for spoilers and foreshadowing. Thank you again for listening and for supporting the show. I hope you will come back next time for Restless, where the first Slayer attacks Buffy and her friends. If you're enjoying Buffy and the Art of Story, please write a review, share it on social media, or tell a friend. You can find my fiction and back episodes of Buffy and the Art of Story at lisalilly.com. You can also listen to the podcast episodes on YouTube. 